Welcome to the DICE podcast, celebrating diversity and inclusion in the workplace with your host, Mina. Welcome to everybody to the Disclusion webinar today. So Disclusion is disability inclusion. That's how we came up with the name. Um, So I just wanted to give you a very quick introduction about Events Together, who we are, and um, what we stand for. So Events Together is a, a, an events consultancy based in Milton Keynes, and we organize events to do with exhibitions, conferences, gala dinners, ride and drives, anything that comes under the events banner, whether it's in the UK or internationally. But a lot of what we do is definitely about diversity and inclusion in the workplace. And one major event that we organize annually is This Is Us conference. And one of our great panelists today, Quinn Roche, very kindly spoke at our recent This Is Us conference and he spoke about LGBT inclusion. So next year we are going to expand it. We're going to include LGBT, disability, women and BAME. We're going to also include a business expo and an awards gala dinner to do with diversity and inclusion. So keep up with all the news with events together. This is us conference and also the social enterprise which supports this, which is diversity in conferences and events. Without further ado, I'm going to welcome our panelists today. We have Priya Smith, who is creative producer and who is actually a co-producer of today's webinar and worked very closely with me to produce this fantastic event today. We have Quinn Roche, who is LGBT and Disabled Policy Officer at TUC, and we have Jane Hatton, who is Director of Evenbreak. Good morning, everybody, and welcome. And let me first pass on to Priya to give a quick introduction of who you are. Hi everyone, I'm really um, excited to be here today. Thank you for joining. Um, So my name is Priya Smith. I have been a freelance producer in experiential events for the last 10 plus years. I'm hard of hearing. I wear two hearing aids. I started losing my hearing as a teenager and it is a degenerative condition. So it's something that will ebb and flow um, throughout the, the rest of my life. Um, so I recently started my platform called Love Dis, which is a space that celebrates disability and diversity, focusing on the person first. Thanks, Priya. Jane? Hi, yes, so I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you, Mina. Um, so I'm Jane Hatton, and I founded uh, Evenbreak, which is a not-for-profit job board run by and for disabled people. And so we help inclusive employers attract more talented disabled candidates to their organizations. And I also live with disability. I have a degenerative spinal condition, which leaves me with uh, chronic pain and a bit of a dodgy left hand. Thank you, Jane. And Quinn. You know, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, My name is Quinn Roach. I work for the Trade Union Congress, uh, focus on disabled workers policy. And um, we're really interested in this area because sort of there are 4.1 million disabled people in work and we represent a million of them. So we're really keen to make sure that disabled people are getting a fair deal at work. Um, And I am also a disabled worker uh, diagnosed with dyslexia at the age of six. So um, working in policy can be a challenge when I cannot spell the word I'm looking for, Mm -hmm. which is every day. Thank you very much. So Jane, over to you for the first question. There are different forms of disability and more often or not, we think about disability in its visible disability. So perhaps somebody in a wheelchair, but we don't often think about what goes beyond disability. So could you please let us know what is considered a disability? Yes, for sure. I mean, I think as you say, you know, the symbol for disability is someone sitting in a wheelchair. 
Um, but actually less than 8% of disabled people use wheelchairs and some of those won't use them full time. So um, it's, a, it's a very broad definition. Um, we like to think of the social model of disability, which actually means that people who have um, impairments or long-term health conditions that um, mean that they face barriers that, that other people don't face. So it could be um, dyslexia, as Quinn was talking about, it could be hearing impairment that, you know, all three of us have um, disabilities, but we, none of us look disabled. So I think it's actually about looking at the much broader sense. And I think only about 80% of, um, of, yeah, about 80% of disabled people don't look disabled. So it's not a visible condition. Um, and actually, so that what that means is a lot of people that we know that we see in society every day may well be disabled. We just don't know that they are. And uh, yes, it can cover autism. It can cover mental health. It can cover learning disabilities. Anything that really makes it difficult for someone to live their everyday life and do everyday things in the same way that everybody else does. It just means that we face additional barriers. Absolutely. Um, and Quinn, do you have anything to add to that? Oh, I thought that was an excellent um, introduction and exactly what I was going to say. Um, I think the, the social model is absolutely important and a lot of people don't or haven't heard of it. And actually, we've done a little learning module on it, which takes about five minutes to do. And I'm just going to share it in the chat in case anyone hasn't come across the term before and just wanted to know a bit more about what the social model is. Um, but yeah, no, I, I don't have anything to add. I just thought that was, was brilliant, Jane, and you saw some of my thunders are good. <laughs> Absolutely. Priya, do you have anything to add? Oh, I mean, I can only really talk from sort of um, my lived experience. And I think it, it comes down to a wider subject of not just even disability, but just having consideration for people through what they may be going through emotionally as well. We're all walking around with a story. We're all walking around with an experience. And I think a little bit more compassion, a little bit more understanding for everyone around us will in general make our awareness that much more heightened. And I think our attitudes and our behavior that much more inclusive. No, absolutely. And you have grown up with a disability which yeah. occurred in your teens. Mm. So how did you find that impacted you in an educational environment and then transitioning to the workplace? I mean, I, um, I started losing my hearing when I was 13 and I had zero support for my school. I had very little support from the medical community as well. They thought I was making it up. Various audiologists thought I was just teenage angst or trying to get attention um, as a 13, 14 year old. Um, the school was very unsupportive. I had my my French teacher um, telling me how uh, she would forget that I had a hearing problem and that's what she did. Um, I would sit examinations and the examiner wouldn't be told that I would have a hearing difficulty. I wouldn't be sat in the front close to them. So I misheard some of the adjudicator's um, instructions, which actually meant that I thought we had longer for a maths exam than we did. And as a result, I ended up getting a C rather than my predicted B. Luckily, it didn't impact what I wanted to do in the future, but it's outrageous and it shouldn't have happened. So by the time I got diagnosed at 17, I was in college and um, and I'd kind of sort of found my own way. Um, and I then got myself into university, into art college. And I, again, received little to no 
help at all. I would, uh, it was an arts, it was a design degree. So there was a written module assigned. The most I'd get is the lecturer's notes, but no additional meetings, no extensions. Um, uh, a dear friend of mine was dyslexic. She got a bit more time to deliver her papers in, but the fact that I had to sit and transcribe tapes that I was recording didn't qualify me for extra time. Um, so there was a there was a, a real lack of support throughout my university education. But this was this was quite a while ago. But I then sort of you then sort of find yourself spectacularly dropped into the working world where there is even less support because you're now in a very competitive market with every other graduate. Luckily for me, I got my first job was with the BBC and it was a, um, a disability initiative. So I was like, great, I'm in there. And I got, I got the job and then it was a one year long traineeship. But once I joined, there was no support. I didn't have like a, say a, a key worker or a mentor. I didn't have anyone asking me whether I had the right equipment that I needed apart from maybe uh, an amplifier with the desk phone I actually had a line manager who told me that my being hard of hearing was frustrating for her <laughs> and it was ironic that I'm here as part of a disability initiative um, so I left and then I went to work at the Victorian Albert Museum in their um, in their uh, cultural and inclusion department and that was spectacular that was such a positive amazing experience so by the time I left I was 27 and I'd gained my ex my confidence in in the working world but I was lucky that I had those wonderful four years at the BNA in an inclusive environment that supported my needs and supported other needs of my colleagues who were also disabled but I think universities have come a, a long way since then I think teaching and learning in higher education has uh, become more inclusive. Um, but I think these positive developments are still really uneven. Um, I think they can go a lot further. You know, examples of inclusive practices would be to reform the service or the practice that all students have an equal opportunity to thrive. I think, you know, a reasonable adjustment would be um, to have uh, learning uh, students who have learning differences or deaf students um, could benefit from a short 10 minute tutorial before the start of an assignment. Uh, and then students could have have uh, initial tutorial and opportunity to discuss their ideas. Um, I think this would ensure that they don't misinterpret the assignment. I think this would also um, help with a second tutorial where students can share a brief example of their work just so that they're reassured that they're on the right track. Um, and I don't think this is about lowering academic standards in any way. Um, I think by making reasonable adjustments, I think all students have an equal opportunity to demonstrate their knowledge their skills and their understanding. And I believe that non-disabled students could benefit from this as much as students who choose not to disclose their disability. So I think, I think a lot more work needs to be done, um, but the reality is that 72% of graduates will still not declare their disability to an employer. So there's a big chasm there from, uh, from an inclusive, semi-inclusive, I think some universities are better than others, into the working world where there isn't anything other than some inclusive employers and recruitment agencies like Jane's even break. Um, that's a really good 
points that you made actually some strategies that educational environments can take on board to help students yeah. and obviously it's clear that educational establishments whether it's schools colleges universities sixth forms etc can and actually should be doing a lot more to help prepare not only disabled people but everybody about disability awareness mm. in the work Place, help them prepare disabled people for the work for the workplace but also raise awareness to non-disabled people so they are also aware when they go into the workplace because it is not only um, um about non-disabled people not knowing about it it is definitely an awareness that should start at in, in the education actually at home like everything at home. should start at home um but definitely I think it should be um, as part of a curriculum to have diversity and inclusion as a whole on a curriculum which would include disability inclusion because it affects everybody in everyday life and you never know that later on in life it might affect you or mm. a member of your family or friend or colleague. So to have a basic awareness, I think, would be so much better to have that awareness before you go into a workplace mm. and then, of course, carry on as an employer. Mm. But I think that education needs to start at primary school. Absolutely. As young as that. I think even by the time you get to high school, it's it's too late. At primary school, a um, bit like languages, you know, students' brains are like sponges and you're, they're learning life lessons. Young, young children are learning morals and values. And if this is part of that genetic makeup of their learning, it goes with them throughout, throughout their education and into their, into their working life. Jane, I can see you nodding away. Can I ask you to add to that? Yeah, so I think there's, um, I absolutely agree with Priya that, um, you know, children tend not to discriminate by, mm. by nature. Um, they are taught to, so they're taught to by society to be racist or homophobic mm. or whatever it might be. And, um, and if, we could, um, if we could learn from young children that actually people are people, and everybody's different and everybody has equal value. That's going to make the world a much better place. But I think in the meantime, um, alongside what Priya said about um, preparing disabled students for work life, there's also a huge amount of work to be done to prepare employers mm. for receiving those students. And, um, you know, for me, one of the biggest barriers for disabled people in work. And we have to remember, as you say, this can happen to anybody at any time. And 83% of disabled people, I'm one of them, become disabled as an adult. So this can happen to anyone at any time. Mm. It's the only protected characteristic where that happens. You know, you're not going to wake up a different race, but you mm -hmm. could wake up having had a stroke or something. And I'm here to tell you, it's not, it's not the end of the world if that happens, that you can be disabled and still have a absolutely fulfilling and amazing life. Um, but for me, it's about employers re recognising that disabled people are a valuable source of talent. And I think at the moment, a lot of employers, there are exceptions, but a lot of employers look at disabled candidates as problems, as people who won't be as productive, people who might have time off sick, people who might need expensive adjustments. Um, you know, and, and actually it's going to be too much hassle. So let's not employ someone who's disabled. Let's employ someone who isn't going to bring all those problems with them. Whereas actually the reality is that disabled people have less time off sick than non-disabled people on average. We're just as productive. 
Um, you know, we uh, also bring lots of intelligence with us about the disabled community. So if the organization wants to have disabled customers paying them money, mm. then actually you need inside intelligence about how to tap into those markets. Mm. And also, I think, um, you know, this is obviously my, my uh, soapbox, as you can tell, um, the whole nature of being disabled, the whole social model that we were talking about before is that there's nothing wrong with a disabled person. Mm. It's the barriers that we face. And so by the nature, even though disability is hugely diverse, the one thing that every disabled person has in common is that we have to overcome barriers that other people don't have to overcome. And what that means is whether you're born with a naturally innovative brain or creative problem solving skills, you have to develop them just mm. to survive in a world that isn't designed for you. Mm. So you become innovative, you find creative um, solutions to problems, you become resilient, you become determined and persistent. And actually as an employer, what you really want in your workforce are people who are that. resilient and yes. flexible and able to find different ways of doing things and don't you know give up at the first sign of a problem, but they'll be resilient and they'll, um, you know, they'll, they'll work on different ways of doing things. And if ever that was true, and it's always been true, it's even more to the fore now. I mean, I think we know, don't we, that with COVID, everything has changed. And um, my hope is that we won't go back to the normal that we had before. We will in terms of health, I hope, and mm. resistance to COVID. But in terms of working practices, that what we've learned during COVID, and we have to look for the silver linings when such a horrific crisis happens, is that actually the new ways of working are really going to need all those things I've just talked about, you know, flexibility, the ability to work remotely, the ability to find different ways of doing things, the acceptance that maybe the nine to five, 40 hours a week, everybody in the commute rush hour going to a place of work, you know, actually doesn't work for most people. And yeah. we should be much more flexible about when people work, how many hours they work, when those hours are worked and where they work from. And actually the real experts at all of that are disabled people. So we are actually now premium candidates. So really employers should be looking to learn from disabled people to get more disabled people in their organizations so that they can learn the lessons about actually there isn't only one way of doing things. There are lots of right ways of doing things. And we can learn from people who spent their lives having to adapt to situations that don't suit them. You know, none of us wanted COVID. Nobody wanted to be forced to work from home, you know, against their will in some cases. But actually for disabled people, that's been a reality, you know, forever. We've had to be forced into situations that aren't comfortable, that don't meet our needs. And, um, you know, I just think that we need to make sure that employers recognise that, you know, they can learn a lot from disabled people and we bring a lot with us. It's not kind of a charity issue at all it's a talent issue and mm. uh, you know that's I feel very strongly that employers who do this right are going to be far more competitive and successful in the future. Absolutely and Quinn I can see you nodding away there and can I ask you to add to that? I mean there's so much in, in what Jane said and what Priya said and I actually just wanted to say one of the things that Priya reminded me of is the fact that currently our educational system is failing disabled students. We know that disabled people come out with fewer qualifications and that affects their entire life chances. Um, 
and you know we must do more to fix the educational system so it caters to all disabled people's needs and all needs but actually what I was really excited about was hearing Jane talk about COVID-19 and mm. some of the benefits that we're seeing so I think what trade union disabled members have told us is that they have for a long 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 time wanted to work from home and they have been told no you can't work from home it's impossible we can't do it there's no way and then suddenly <laughs> COVID happened and everybody has been asked to work from home and you're right it definitely has benefits for employers employing disabled people who know how to work flexibly but actually working from home and working flexibly, flexibly also really advantages um, our disabled members who now have less fatigue, uh, can manage their pain better, um, uh, are able to take more frequent um, bathroom breaks. So I think there's so much benefit for everybody from, from this new way of working that we just cannot revert to, to the previous world. Um, it's good for work, it's good for disabled people. I think we should absolutely keep it. And I think just while we're talking about COVID, there's always one upsetting fact, which I can't shake out of my head, which is that disabled people make up about a fifth of the population, but are three fifths of COVID related deaths. So, you know, the day-to-day the -day discrimination that uh, disabled people face in employment and education is also playing out through healthcare. So, you know, it's just something that we need to keep in mind as people who are interested in this area, that there is still work to do sort of across the board. No, ab absolutely. And thank you so much for that. So we're, we've, we've talked about the myths around disabled talent and the barriers that employers, employees face when it comes to employment. But I really would like to touch on that a little bit more and really go into deep, have a bit of a deep dive in what employers feel are barriers to employing disabled people and the barriers that uh, disabled people also face when they apply for jobs open it up to the panel I, th I think perhaps if I can just jump in here I think um, also building on what Quinn was saying is that when we talk about doing things for disabled people in the name of inclusion um, what we find is that works for everybody whether you're disabled or not so mm. for example during during the covid crisis lots and lots of non-disabled people have been saying actually I'm not sure I want to go back to a two-hour commute. I think I might want to spend more of that time with family. And it's not good for the environment to have all those cars and buses and everything on the roads at rush hour and, and all the rest of it. So I think for me, the message to employers about the barriers that they perceive is that those barriers are often not real. So the perception of disabled people as being expensive, for example, is rarely the case. So usually, I mean, we have 50,000 uh, disabled candidates on our books and usually the adjustments that they will need will be things that are already available. So it will be something like, I'd like to work flexibly. Most enlightened employers now offer flexible working anyway. And I think it was born out of um, parents of young children, but actually lots of people benefit from flexible working. Or if it's someone, let's say with visual impairment, they just need you to make sure that in the office, People don't put rubbish in the in the walkways. You know, it's just good housekeeping. It doesn't cost anything. Um, or, you know, most of the adjustments are free. Uh, they're good for everybody. There will be people who need more adjustments. So there may be somebody who needs a bigger monitor or assistive technology or a particular piece of equipment. Um, but access to work, which lots of employers still don't know about, is there to pay for those. 
Mm. Um, and they will pay for all or, or some of the adjustments that disabled people need. So the barrier that, that employers think they have, which is we can't afford to employ disabled people, um, is, is not a barrier because that there is very little money involved. And actually, all employers know that what you really want is the best person for the job. Mm. And if the best person for the job needs 100 quid spending, you know, to in order for them to, then it's worth spending that money because you've got the best person for the job. So um, I think um, the barriers that um, employers think that they face when they're looking at employing disabled people, you know, it really isn't the case. It's about good management generally. Mm. If you're a good manager, you'll be able to manage disabled employees just as well as you manage non-disabled people. So I think it's about perception largely. I also think there's a job to be done in terms of education of, you know, for example, hiring managers and line managers that, um, you know, this people are, even if they're not wanting to discriminate, and I, I actually think most people don't want to discriminate. It's usually born out of, you know, fear of getting yes. it wrong. And, um, and I think the, what happens is, is that um, managers, employers tend to shy away from disability because they're frightened of what happens if I use the wrong word? What happens if I offend somebody without meaning to? What happens if I want to help, but I come across as being patronising? It's all that kind of fear of getting it wrong. So the easiest thing to do is avoid that issue altogether. Mm. Whereas actually, it's much, much easier than it seems. And the reality is that every disabled person, whoever they are, is the absolute expert in their own experience. So the thing to do is not to shy away from it, but to say to somebody, an open question, what do we need to do? to help you thrive in the workplace. It's a simple, open question. And actually it's a question that should be asked to every employee, not just to disabled employees. So it might be that you have a disabled employee that says, actually it's useful for me if I have my instructions written down so I can refer to them because I have short-term memory loss or you know, this can be useful. But you might have a non-disabled person who says, um, actually, I, I really need to, to have work flexibly so that I can pick my kids up from school mm. or I'm doing an OU course outside of work and I need a bit of time off for that, mm. you know, whatever it might be. And for me, that's just about good management. Learn who your people are as individuals and what as an organisation you can do to help everybody thrive and work at their best. And that's definitely in the interest of the employer, because if you have all your employees working at their best and being as productive as they can be, then the organisation itself, um, you know, benefits. So I do think it's around employers not seeing the barriers, but seeing the opportunities. And actually, we need a diversity of talent. We need people who think differently. We need people who are going to challenge the status quo and come up with new and exciting ideas. And actually, rather than seeing disability as a threat or a problem or something to be avoided, see it as something that's a really great opportunity for the whole organization to thrive and benefit and grow and learn. Um, We've a long way to go, but I think if we start looking at it in that perspective, then people are more motivated Mm. to make adjustments that might be needed because the whole organization will benefit from that. Absolutely. It's got some really great points there, Jane. And as you say, it's, it's what works for disabled person will actually work or could work for a non-disabled person for example that flexibility or that um, commute time I know I had to commute at least an hour or so driving each way to work stressed out getting up at six leaving at seven getting into the office for eight 
doing an eight at nine hour day, getting trying to rush out the office at five. So I, you know, would try and beat the traffic, and it's all quite stressful. But you know, since I'm working from home. I don't have that stress of commuting every day. And I do have that little bit of more flexibility of, you know, taking more regular breaks, et cetera. So absolutely, Jane, definitely agree that what what works for not uh, for a disabled person, we should absolutely look at that for organization as a whole and are actually role models. So uh, great points there. Quinn, do you want to add anything from um, an employee perspective? Because you, of course you are from the Trade Union Congress. So I'm sure you've got a... Um, lots of uh, observations from that perspective. Um, there's so much in, in what Jane was saying just there. And I think, you know, if you remove the workplace barriers that disabled people face, what you will find is that you have an employee who's just like everybody else. You know, disabled people aren't different. Takes, a, takes almost, most reasonable adjustments are no cost or low cost, as Jane has said. And for everything else, there's access to work. And I've dropped that uh, link to access to work into the chat because I think, as you say, Jane, a lot of employers don't know that it exists, don't know that they can access it and that it will cover the costs of adjustments. But, um, you know, when we talk about, you talked about communication and you're right, I think a lot of uh, managers are worried about using the wrong language, saying the wrong things and upsetting their disabled workers. And I think also um, disabled workers are worried about having that open communication with their line manager. And I think the best thing that both sides can do is come to this with an idea and a plan of how the communication will work and what they want to get out of it. Um, and actually one of the things that the trade union movement invented and are still pushing forward is the Reasonable Adjustments Disability Passport. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it's a simple piece of kit. It's just a Word document that outlines the things you need to talk about, records what adjustments have been put in place, and it allows the disabled member or disabled employee to keep those adjustments when their line manager changes or when they move jobs. And it outlines exactly the kinds of things that you need to talk about. So it gives people the script so they feel more comfortable to have the conversation. Um, and if you're here watching, you'll have seen that I'm dropping links in all the time. So I also <laughs> want to say that the TUC, we have produced a free passport that isn't a Word document that if you are an employer who's like, I don't or can't afford to buy this or create this myself, it's free, you can take it. You can, it's in a Word document so you can amend it to meet mm -hmm. your own um, uh, workplace needs. And I'm gonna drop that in, in a second. It just helps to take the fear out of the conversation because it tells you exactly all the things that you wanna cover. I think it's interesting what you say, Quinn, because and both you and Jane, because um, it's it's kind of the problem initially starts with you have an employer who's at a point now in their career and in their life where they don't know how to address this subject because they never had the opportunity to address it much, much earlier in their life, uh, which would, you know, solve all of these problems and help break down all these barriers within communication. I mean, ultimately, employers are making these adjustments every day. If an employee is pregnant, if an employee has broken their leg, if an employee has relocated and they want to work remotely because they're a va really valued member of staff, employers make these adjustments constantly. So to suddenly turn around and look at a disabled candidate and say oh no I can't make these adjustments for you well it's ludicrous and it doesn't it doesn't make sense because actually in practice they're making these adjustments every single day 
And like you said, I mean, the, the simplest thing is to ask a disabled person what their needs are, but to also not make the mistake that two people who you have either employing or you know in your life shared this, the same disability, had the same experience or had the same needs. They don't. Two people with a hearing loss will have completely different experiences and requirements and, and personalities. And I think that's something that um, employers need to take into consideration as well. Different people have different personalities. Then you have the layer of their disability. Then you have, you know, subsequent layers beneath that. Some are naturally more confident. Some people aren't. And then they are that that personality is also then com confounded by their lived experience. So it's about looking at the individual in every single circumstance. And, and if you value your employee and you value the people, because people buy people, people uh, believe in people, and that's what this is about. So if you value the person who you are employing, then you take time and attention to see how you can make that employee be more comfortable and give them the tools to thrive within your company, like you should with any employee. I've had quite an interesting point raised, <clears throat> excuse me, on the Q&A from Donna. And she's saying, as a specialist, non-for-profit recruitment consultancy, we were excited about the new ability to work from home, agile and flexible working. But we have seen a new barrier that some clients are advertising roles that pay less if you work from home. So, yes, uh, Deutsche Bank um, made a, uh, a suggestion recently that um, people who work from home should be taxed more because they don't get <laughs> uh, which is absolutely, sorry, Deutsche Bank, ridiculous. Um, you know, people who work from home have extra costs because mm. they've got heating and lighting, electricity that they might be using. Um, so, and also we know, you know, Scope has done research to talk about disabled people, particularly who have extra pain. You know, it, it's expensive yes. being disabled. disabled. <laughs> an extra 500, 500 and Yes, 583 pounds a month more. Yeah, so, so actually penalising people from working at home seems the wrong way to go about it, really. Yeah. I think, for me, the danger of um, remote working and it becoming so popular is we can go to the extreme of, oh, well, this is fine. Every disabled person can work from home and we haven't got to worry about making the offices accessible. Mm. And that's absolutely not right either. Because um, some people, we know through the pandemic, you know, disabled or not disabled, some people love working from home. I've always worked from home, you know, for many, many years and love it. It suits me absolutely fine. But there are people who lived in shared accommodation where it's really difficult or who have young children or who live in abusive relationships, um, or just like the social aspect yeah. of going to work. They, you know, like meeting with colleagues. Um, and so I don't think it should be, oh, well, non-disabled people can work in the office and disabled people can work remotely. It, it should be, I think, that remote working is an option yes. for any role for which, it, obviously, if you're a nurse, you can't work from home. You know, if you're a receptionist, you can't work from home. But for those roles that can be worked from home, it should be an option that's given to every employee. Um, because the danger is that people say, oh, we've solved the accessibility issue now because all disabled people can work from home. We haven't got to worry about accessible transport or accessible buildings or no, you do. You know, we still have to make sure that the world is as accessible to disabled people as it is to non-disabled people. And for me, it should be about choice. Hmm. So just as you know, many people have hated being forced to work from home. 
Um, some disabled people hate being forced to work from the office, but also, you know, vice versa. So I do think it's about what's best for the individual, what's best for the organisation, what's best for the role. And it needs to be a dialogue where it is around um, choice, not imposing, you know, particular things on individuals, whether they're disabled or not disabled. That's the danger. But just sorry, going back to what you were saying, Mina, about the... Um, the barriers that disabled people might face when they're looking for work. We did some research. Well, we didn't do it. We commissioned some research on this um, last year, UCL Carriage Attack for us, where they interviewed, they asked um, disabled people, what, you know, what are the barriers that you face when you look for work? And they had over 700 respondents. So I think it was worth listening to, you know, what they learned. And by far, absolutely by far, the biggest barrier that disabled people said they faced was not knowing which employers to trust. Yes. Yes. So, and, and then after that, it was inaccessible recruitment processes. And yes, sometimes it was about confidence, but by far 80% said the biggest barrier is that every employer says we are an equal opportunities employer, mm. but disabled people know that most aren't, particularly when it, become, when it comes to disability. So why would you keep knocking your head against that same brick wall where you might um, not mention in your CV or your application form that you're disabled, but as soon as it becomes necessary to mention it or it becomes visible, let's say at an interview, that's the point at which you're immediately rejected. Why would you keep putting yourself through that? So what our candidates tell us is that if we see that an organisation, for example, has paid to advertise their jobs on a job board that's only for disabled people. You know, they're proactively going out there targeting disabled candidates. We have confidence to apply and we have confidence to be open about our impairments because we know it's not going to be a barrier for those few organisations. So I think, you know, from, from an employer's perspective, I'm not saying you should all um, advertise on even break, although it would be great if you did, but you need to really work hard in your the way you word your adverts, where you place them, um, in your reputation as an inclusive employer, whether that's uh, being disability confident, whether it's being a mindful employer, just really having to work hard to make sure that disabled candidates know that their talent is what interests you mm. as an employer. So you're not going to be put off by something that's irrelevant, that has nothing to do with their ability to do the job. You know, you can't possibly work in a call centre because your legs don't work properly. You know, you don't need legs to answer the phone or make phone calls. You need a voice and a personality. Mm. So it's about looking at the talent first. And then if the talent is what you need, then the reasonable adjustments will be, as we've said, easy and or cheap or and or irrelevant. Um, but actually, it's about making sure that candidates know their talent will be welcome in your organisation. Otherwise, you're going to miss out on that talent. It's as mm. simple as that. And I think it says a lot as well by leading by example. You know, can an employer say they have certain percentage of disabled staff that they've recruited? You know, um, especially in, you know, the, the political, uh, the social and political um, uh, events that have been taking place over the summer. Every company on a job description has put a little little mini paragraph. We're inclusive. We're this, we're that. Please let us know. We, we, we welcome applications from you. Is that genuine? 
how do you know? You you can't tell. You know, if you are a person of color and you are a person who has a disability, there's there's some barriers that are already in front of you. Which which do you pick? Which is the lesser of two evils? You know, um, you've been asked to asked to declare who you are because that's who they want to meet. But is that true? And you're not hearing any feedback back. So I think a lot more needs to be done to say from employees to actually um, as you know, just like a, um, uh, an employee, you have to demonstrate your fitness for the job. Well, an employer needs to demonstrate how fit they are as an employee recruiting within this space. Definitely. No, absolutely. Quinn, do you want to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. I think <clears throat> this idea of trust is so important. And actually, we know that it's exactly as Jane says, disabled workers don't know which employers to go to. Mm. And all employers have really great policies, which they should publicize if they haven't. Um, but we know that disabled people are less likely to be in work. And when they are in work, they're less likely to be paid at the same level. Um, that Deutsche Bank report made me literally scream mm-hmm. <laughs> with, with rage and anger. But what we, what we think would help disabled people and disabled workers get that trust is if the government would introduce disability pay gap reporting. And what we want the government to do uh, is to mandate that employers tell us, you know, about their re- recruitment and promotion policies and how many disabled people are being recruited and promoted, what their pay and remuneration policy is and, and what quarter disabled workers are in. So they can literally look and see a report and see, okay, this employer employs disabled people, this employer promotes disabled people, this employer doesn't have a lot of grievances raised by disabled people. Mm. Um, you know, we think that that would go a long way to helping us know who are genuinely good employers and who aren't. And it actually would help employers as well because they would have to use their data to look at their own systems and they could tweak those systems to make sure that they are actually employing the best talent and promoting the talent up through the pipeline. Um, so we think that, you know, it would benefit everybody. But I mean, that does kind of bring us onto something I wanted to talk about anyway. Is it okay if we- Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. So one of the things that um, that the TUC that I've done for the past three years is I've looked at the disability um, pay gap and the disability employee gap to really understand what's happening. Because actually what the government have done since 2015 is they've really focused on getting disabled workers into employment. And we think that's great. But what they never talk about and have only recently talked about since I've been doing my report is what the pay gap is. So disabled people are not paid at the same level as non-disabled people. My recent analysis from this year shows that the pay gap is actually 20%. Um, That means that on average, a disabled person earns £2.10 less an hour. And if you annualize that figure, what it means is disabled people are earning £3,800 less a year. That's kind of based on a 35-hour work week. And we know that's imaginary because people usually work more, but we had to do something. And when we look at, when we compare that 3,800 pounds to last year's figure, what we find is that the gap has increased by 800 pounds. And the analysis is not, does not take into, does not look at a period of the coronavirus. Though this is not impacted by the coronavirus pandemic, it's pre-coronavirus. So it's, it's just outrageous and it makes me so angry. But the thing that I really don't like to do is I don't like to talk about things in the abstract and money, even if you know how much it is, it's still abstract, right? 3,800 pounds. Sounds like a lot to some people, sounds like a little to others, but what does it mean? What is 
the value of 3,800 pounds. Well, I can tell you that will buy the average family one year and two months worth of food. Okay, so that's what disabled people are not getting. And that is one of the reasons why when you hear about food banks, you'll hear about disabled workers using them. So they're five times more likely to use a food bank and it's because they're paid, you know, a year and two months less of food. Um, so it's just really important to kind of keep that in mind. And one of the questions that often comes back is why is there a pay gap? What, what is driving the pay gap? And you can only answer that in two parts. You can say what a statistical analysis will tell you. And that will tell you that disabled workers are more likely to be in part-time work and part-time jobs, especially in the private sector are paid less an hour than their full-time equivalents. Um, it will tell you that disabled workers are more likely to be in low paid work. Um, so they're overrepresented in careers like care, leisure, um, sales and customer service and less likely to be in senior managerial roles. And coming back to what Priya was saying earlier, it will tell you that disabled workers are uh, not as likely to be as highly qualified as non-disabled workers. But that's a red herring because when you control the data and look strictly comparing disabled people with the same qualifications as non-disabled people, there is still a pay gap. There is still a massive pay gap. So that's a red herring. The pay gap exists for those three reasons, but it also exists because of um, unlawful discrimination at hiring and recruitment stages, keeping mm. disabled people out of work. When disabled people get into work, there are the structural barriers they face, and those structural barriers can be physical um, or attitudinal. And then kind of the negative attitudes that prevent them from moving up the career ladder. So I think there's a lot in the pay gap. Um, you know, and I was speaking about, you know, a recommendation that we have mandatory disability pay gap reporting, and it's to address this massive 20% gap. And it's to address the fact that disabled workers are less likely to be in work than their non-disabled peers. Um, only around 50% of disabled people are employed at the moment um, of working age, whereas 80% <coughs> are employed. So you see there's just this massive gap. And what we really want to see is disabled people who can and want to work in employment. And we want to see it done in a way that is not punitive and based on sanctions, which is currently what's happening. Um, is there a link to your report, uh, Quinn? Uh, yeah, I do actually have a link to my report. I'm filled with links. I'll, um, I'll <laughs> drop it over. So I've got one report from last year, which sets out our recommendation, which I will pop into the chat now. And then following that, I'll pop in the most up-to-date statistics. It won't surprise anyone that if you're a disabled woman, your pay gap is much higher. Mm. Um, and if you are a disabled um, person of color, you are less likely to be in employment. So, um, you know, when we talk about uh, intersectionality and multiple mm. layers of discrimination, mm. my, my evidence really points that out very clearly. So I've got a couple of comments here in, in the chat and also there's a, a Q, uh, one come from the Q&A as well, but let me just address the chats first. So um, Jagdish said, maybe companies should not ask about disability, rage, age, sexuality at the point of recruitment because it should not have any basis of employing that individual. They can ask those questions or keep that data 
once a job has been offered. And somebody um, has replied back to say, in theory, that information isn't being read within the application, it's stored separately. The problem with not collecting the information is that at the point of application is you won't know how diverse your applicant pool yeah. is and where you need to improve your recruiting efforts. Any comments? I think yeah, definitely. I think monitoring is important because we know from all the evidence that Quinn's just talked about that there is um, discrimination, whether it's deliberate or otherwise, um, right from the get go. And actually what we need to know is at which point in the recruitment process are the barriers occurring. And if, for example, we don't um, capture the, the, the well, all, all of the equality data, at the beginning, we won't know, for example, whether our um, advertising is working. So is it that, you know, if we're only employing a, a very small percentage of a minor, minority group, whoever it might be, at what point did that start? So I do think it's important to monitor. I do think it's important to keep that separate because, you know, the first person who mentioned it is right. You know, you don't want the first thing that the shortlisting people to know is, um, oh, well, you know, give them opportunities for conscious or unconscious bias. Um, however, at some point in the process, it's going to become obvious anyway, because the name or interview or, you know, somebody went to a girls school. I mean, I'm against CVs anyway as a, as a, as a way yeah. of shortlisting. But, um, you know, there are so many opportunities for recruiters to know all of that information, whether it's actually mentioned or not. And also, I think for, for a lot of disabled people, it's important to mention it, not for everybody, and it's always a choice. But I think, for example, you know, going back to CVs, CVs often don't show the brilliance of a candidate, because if they've been discriminated against in the past, for whatever reason, they won't have had the opportunity to have the career history that other people might have had to mm. demonstrate their ability to do things. So their CV won't reflect their skills and their talents. And sometimes it's useful for um, a candidate to explain that, mm. you know, to explain that actually some, some of these things I have done maybe in a voluntary capacity or outside of the workplace, but just to, um, you know, CVs don't talk about potential. And, uh, you know, and also and, and some disabled people may need adjustments during the recruitment process. Mm. So they'll need to be upfront about that as well in terms of, you know, I'll need a remote interview or I'll need to see the questions before or whatever it might be. Mm. I'll need a sign language interpreter. Um, and so it's necessary for people to say early on that they do have an impairment and what, and what the adjustments are mm. that they, they might need. I think the, um, for me, the, the key is to reduce as far as possible any um, opportunities for barriers to occur in that recruitment process on either side, whether it's from employers to candidates or candidates to employers. So that if you have a system that isn't based on the things that currently they are, like work history, like which university you went to, you know, um, and actually is based on what recruiters really need to know, which is the person's ability and their strengths and their potential, then um, actually, that almost it becomes irrelevant because everybody has the same opportunity but you know we're a long way from that yet mm. yeah absolutely um another question um has has come through actually 
it'll probably take us in on to the next set of questions anyway. But Donna has said, as a recruiter, we ask our client with regard to reasonable adjustments at the job briefing stage and their policies on disability recruitment. But do you have top tips on how we can dip deeper and push clients to demonstrate that they are truly a trusted employer? Which then actually brings me on to our sort of next area of discussion or question I was going to ask was, should there be more specialised recruitment agencies, especially in vetting companies companies for its suitability of employing disabled talent or should this be more mainstream I'm going to ask you Jane because as you are um, in recruitment um I would love that to be a world where we don't need specialist recruitment agencies at all for any protected characteristic and that every recruiter just purely looked at candidates on merit and potential um I would love for there need to be no even break um, but I think we're not there yet because so many organisations haven't, um, you know, reached that point. Um, but I think that there is a lot that organisations can do. Um, one of the things that was mentioned there was about, you know, asking candidates if they need adjustments. Uh, one of the tips that's a quick tip that we would say to somebody is in the advert, instead of saying at the moment, people often uh, say, are you disabled? Yes, no. Mm. Do you need any adjustments? What are they? which to me smacks of legislation compliance. You know, oh, we're trying not to be sued. Whereas you could do exactly that same function by saying something like, we want all of our candidates to shine in this recruitment process. Tell us what we need to do. Mm. It doesn't mention disability, but it opens the door for someone to say, oh, I need X. And I won't be discriminated against by telling you I need X. So it's it's the same question, but it's it's how you ask it. It's like the monitoring question, you know, make it really clear. We're asking these questions not so that we can discriminate against you, but so that we can actually ensure our processes aren't discriminating against you. So it's all about communication and the way things are said. And I think, um, you know, by, set, by not saying, are you disabled, do you need adjustments? But by saying, actually, we want to see all of our candidates at their, at their best. Also tells other candidates, that they want to, they they want them to shine as well. So again, it might be, can you avoid the interview at school runtime because I've got kids mm. to, you know, m- might be nothing to do with disability. But it's a really strong, powerful message that the organisation really does care about the candidates, really does want to see them at their best, and appreciates that people are all different and need different things. And so it it's about making it inclusive, friendly, open, fair, rather than we don't want to be sued, which is mm. effective effectively what a lot of adverts say that's a great question because on on my registration form i think i put something along the lines of um do you have any requirements that you you may um need in terms of accessibility to the platform and i had a couple of people who contacted me and i contacted them back straight away and they both said well how refreshing is that that someone's actually taking the time to actually read my comments and come back to me so I felt obviously um that's all a bit shocked that you know if it's on the form well why aren't on a registration form why is a delegate registration manager or whoever is handling the registration process not contacting them is it just a tick in the box exercise which obviously seems to be so you know I felt you know quite shocked but I actually felt quite pleased and um happy that I'd actually taking the time to read the the registration form or the answers anyway which I would and contacted them so it makes them feel more inclusive and more welcome and they are likely to join the conversation and today's 
conversation is all about raising awareness, isn't it? And the more we talk about a subject, the more we raise awareness, the more people are going to take notice of what we're saying. So um, it's quite interesting, actually, what, what they were saying about, you know, event organizers not getting back to them, which I'm mm. sure would probably be in a, like a recruitment <laughs> sort of section as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, coming back a little bit to the, the, the question as well about recruitment processes, um, you know, uh, an, a recruitment agency like Evenbreak is absolutely fantastic and is doing such amazing work. But the problem also is you find, you find some very industry specific, you know, um, like if you want to go into the creative field, if you want to go specifically into engineering, if you want to, and, and it's a very small world and within say the creative industries it gets even smaller the more niche you become those recruiters need to be doing um, more within their space to ensure that they're recruiting inclusively they are speaking to their um um their colleagues and the organizations and companies that they work with um they need to be having those conversations as well and i think um a lot of the onus sometimes gets put on the disabled person to say this is what I need and this is what I don't need which ultimately always comes back down to that person's confidence and personality and how many knocks that they've had during their life um, will impact that whole process for them so I think there needs to be a lot more meeting in the middle because there are some people who can't go to an agency like Jane's even break because they don't recruit within that space that is needed and so I think a lot more needs to be done for recruiters and not a lot more needs to be done within the graduate uh graduate careers fair market as well you know you go to all these graduate careers uh, fairs after um in your last year of uni or, or at any point you want to enter the workforce and there is a alarming lack there's a void when it comes to that conversation there's no one there to help any disabled students navigate those conversations um, in the arena that they're in and so I think recruitment needs to be looked at in a much more micro level as well. Quinn you came on my podcast recently and we talked about this didn't we so do you want to uh, let the audience know some of the comments that you had about the recruitment fair and Oh, for the life of me, I wish I could remember what I said. Okay. It sounds like no, that, that's fine. <laughs> Quinn and I, um, Quinn very kindly was a guest on my podcast. And we talked about, you know, in terms of a recruitment, what what else can we do to support disabled people? And Quinn and I discussed that actually at a recruitment fair, why do we have a time, a time slot or a day that disabled people can come and it's just dedicated to disabled people. So they get that full attention and that, um, Priya, as you were saying, you know, that, that, kind of um attention so they are not looked over if that makes sense yeah I mean recruitment I mean graduate careers fairs are overwhelming places anyway you know I mean I have very little patience for them and it's not even to do with the fact that I can't even hear anyone because it's so noisy it's just the overwhelming spaces for anyone and I, I think when you know even if you're going to a design festival or any sort of three-day there needs to be more spoken about within these are the platforms these are the right spaces attracting the right audiences they're attracting the right employers the right employees within the market the conversation isn't happening and it should be happening and once you establish that the conversation needs to happen then you start thinking about how that conversation can happen in a way that also lets people who are not disabled join in so, so that that continuous communication, that c- continuous sort of 
um, meeting in the middle of, you know, disabled and non-disabled, that those barriers start to break down and it starts, people start looking at the whole subject as individual needs. Like Jane has said, it's all about individual needs. And if you change your language and you change how you have gone about organizing any of these any of these events and really thinking about what communications, what conversations you really want to come out of this, when you start thinking about it in that more positive light and that more inclusive light, you suddenly find that you're breaking down those barriers a lot more and you're doing, you're doing more positive work within that space. So I want to go back to a couple of the questions actually that are on the chat, if that's okay. Um, a question has been asked, what other, what other mechanisms other than CVs would you recommend? And that's specifically to Jane. Oh, this is my subject. Um, yes. Yeah, so um, if we look at CVs, um, they tell you name, address, sometimes date of birth, what school you went to, what university you went to, what qualifications you've got in your work history. All of that's historic or irrelevant. So my suggestion would be for each role, if you talk to the hiring managers about what they need for that role, there will be certain strengths. So some roles will need... Um, you know, creative blue sky thinking. Other roles might need really detailed thinking. Uh, some roles will need you to be really um, great interpersonal skills because it might be a sales role. Others might be really, um, you know, quite good at being self-directed. You might be in a cubicle doing coding, for example. So if you can isolate, say, the, the three or four or five main skills and strengths that you need for that role, and then you devise questions around those. Mm. And that's all you ask. And that's all that the shortlisting people see. So they are basing their shortlisting decision purely on that person's ability to do that job. Mm. There's no other opportunity for bias. So for me, it's, it's, you know, it's nothing to do with disability. It should be done anyway, because you might have, I don't know, I'm showing, sharing some of my prejudices and stereotypes here, but you know, if you get someone who's got a first from Oxford, mm. you might assume that they're going to be a better candidate than someone who's got a 2-1 from a, a former poly. But without knowing the background, the, the person who's got the first from Oxford might have had private tuition, extra tuition, you know, family connections where they can do internships in great places. The person who's got the 2-1 from a former poly might be someone who's, you know, their, their families, nobody's been to university before. They've had to really work hard, you know, to get A-levels in a, in a school that's not used to, you know, doing A-levels. They may be a far better candidate because they've had to work much harder, you know. But actually what I'm talking about eliminates all of that. You don't need to know any of that. You just mm. need to know what strengths are. And then it's purely based on their ability to do the job. And uh, there's a company called Applied um, who I... Um, admire a great deal They're, they they do applicant tracking systems but um i, I think their url is um be applied dot something or other mm. and uh, and they do this so they they devise questions that will test strengths mm. so it's not about what jobs have you done before what are your hobbies do you like reading you know nobody says what their real hobbies are do they on cvs yeah. I, I like, like watching documentaries no you don't you like no, playing you don't. It. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So actually, the if it's tailored to the job, you're just testing that person. We use it mm. at break all the time, and we've got an amazing team. Shelter also use it. I saw an application on Shelter recently, and they literally asked four questions, 
And through those four questions, they give you a word limit. And through those four questions, you got to describe and um, and um, and basically um, demonstrate your ability to do that job through your thoughts and your experiences. And it was, um, I mean, I didn't, I didn't apply, but it was just a, it was a lovely. It is a lovely application process, and um, and I could see that they would gain more from that than receiving three hundred CVs. I mean, I've yeah, never doing it the way I suggest is that you have fewer applicants, but you have much better quality applicants because whereas they'll the moment, take the effort, they'll take the time. You're going to get four hundred CVs now at the moment, you know, mm. for any job that you advertise, but most of those won't be suitable. Whereas if you've got to answer those questions, it will weed out the people who can't answer those questions. Mm. It will save their time and effort applying for a job that they can't do, and it will save mm. the employer's time and effort in assessing candidates that can't do the job. It's it's exactly. a bit of a no-brainer, really. Yeah. Yes. Quinn, did you want to add anything? Oh, I'm just going to say that um, I work in equality. I have for too many years and I cannot remember the last time I used a CV just because experts in my field know that the best way to get the best candidates is to do competency-based interviews and use a questions-based format so I'm always I, I like to be reminded that people are still asking for CVs and so that's really useful because no they're they're not the best tool for getting the best candidate at all. I mean the research says that you know regardless of inclusion CVs are a very very poor indicator of future performance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was this, this comment in here about meritocracy from from Paula and I yeah you know it, it, exactly what Jane was just saying you know people with the first from Oxford will get selected over maybe someone from a polytechnic with a two one but the reality is that we don't they haven't started at the same place mm. a lot of times someone who's gone to Oxford has parents who have degrees who have a lot of privilege already the idea of meritocracy is is, is, is not true. It's not real. You don't work yourself up from the bootstraps. You know, you're not all starting at a level playing field. Um, but unfortunately, it's starting to re-ingrain itself within our society. So, you know, we've done some polling at the TUC and people are starting to believe in it again. And it, it's, it's just not true. It's not true for disabled workers. It's not true for people of color. It's not true mm. for LGBT people. They all have different levels of privilege we are not all starting at the same starting point, meritocracy. And class has a huge thing to do as well, yep. which, you know, class is a, is a huge um, issue in terms of life opportunities, mm. you know, you can embrace everybody. Yeah, I mean, no, absolutely. nobody says we believe in meritocracy and run the other way. And if a company says something like, we want to improve your resilience to do this job rather than change the job, run the other way. Those are two things which are big, X's, red X's for me. Definitely. Um, I just want to go back to the payback, uh, K back. Pay gap. Pay gap. <laughs> Get my teeth in. Um, I want to go back to the pay gap, if that's okay, Quinn. And um, we talked about because obviously that there is a barrier to employment and there's this pay gap, but we haven't addressed why you think there's a pay gap. So I think. I think I, we, we talked a bit about, you know, the, the, what, the what the statistics tell us. Yeah. Um, Part-time work uh, in lower paid jobs, lower occupational roles, and a bit about education. We talked a bit about the fact that there is just discrimination. You know, there is conscious discrimination at recruitment stages, conscious discrimination within employment promotion opportunities 
as well as kind of barriers which prevent disabled people from reaching their full potential. So I think, you know, it, there's conscious discrimination and, you know, that's not something we can address with unconscious bias training. It's people intentionally deciding not to employ or promote a disabled person. And the best way to address that is to have really strong, robust policies in place, which eliminate anyone's ability to try and directly discriminate. Um, and the other thing are the, the workplace barriers. So if a disabled person hasn't had their barriers they need removed, then they won't be able to achieve as much as they could without mm. those barriers. Whether that's like the stereotypical ramp to get into the office or that's needing a quiet space because of neurodiversity or specialist software like I have to make sure that the words I'm trying to spell are actually the, the right words. The most frustrating one I, I always encounter is nuanced because it always looks like nonced to me. And I'm like, I am not Ooh. trying to say nonced. <laughs> so it's just like, it's those kind of things, um, you know, which are, which are important. And, and that will really help address both uh, the employment level and the, the pay gap. Um, and I think employers should be kind of looking at getting all that monitoring data now, you know, starting to put in place what they need to understand what their disability um, pay gap is. They don't have to wait for the legislation, but I promise you the legislation is coming because I'm gonna make it happen. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to wait. You can start looking at your data now and devising plans to ensure your disabled worker talent are making it up the pipeline. It's a shame we need legislation, isn't it? But it does work because if you think of a couple of years ago when, when mandatory reporting on the gender pay gap, mm. pay, every employer I talked to about disability, well, I've got time for disability, we've got to do the gender pay gap. So, um, you know, which is ridiculous because gender is intersectional as well, isn't it? Yes. You can be black and female and gay and female, mm. and disabled and female, all of that as well. But I do think it brings, it focuses the mind a little bit. I mean, I think the good organisations have been doing this for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, but those organisations who either through ignorance or malice don't do it now, um, when they're forced to do it, it does actually then you know, bring that onto the agenda, high up on the agenda. And typically over the years, disability has been the poor relation. Yeah. You know, we've seen, you know, I mean, I think all inclusion um, areas need to be looked at. But I do think, you know, often we speak to employers and they'll talk about what they're doing on uh, race or gender. But then you say, oh, and disability. And it's kind of, oh, we might be doing that in 2026 or... Right. Oh, poor people. Yeah, we ought to think about them, but, you know, we're too busy or they don't work very hard or, you know, all the myths and stuff. So I think we do need to, you know, something needs to happen to bring disability, you know, up in um, not it's not more important than the other protected characteristics, but it is equally important. As yeah. And when you, when, you know, we think about disabled women because you're talking about the gender pay gap and the disability pay gap. So when you look at them, the research shows that disabled women earn 36%, there's a 36% difference between what disabled women earn and non-disabled men, 36%. That is huge. Shocking. More than a third. The least they could do is try and look at um, disability and gender when they're doing their gender pay gap reporting because uh, it sure. will floor them. <laughs> I have another question saying, what role does collective bargaining play in addressing the disability pay gap? 
I mean, it's a great question. I, I feel like it's from a trade unionist because it's completely my kind of area. Collective bargaining is the goal. So I think where we have recognized trade unions, they need to be they need to be bargaining with their employer to start looking at the disability pay gap. You know, I think there's a report, I think I linked it up earlier. We literally go through all the things that we want an employer to be reporting on and we want the reporting now. They don't have to wait for legislation and it, it goes through every kind of stage. And that is what um, trade union reps should be taking in and bargaining for when they're looking at equality and when they're looking at disabled workers equality. Um, that's, that's, that's the goal they can help at least with those workplaces that are unionized to start getting getting a move on this and that would be my hope um so yeah yeah great question please you know and if, if you're seeing this start don't don't wait go for it <laughs> no absolutely oh, we've got another question come through bear with me um if anybody else has anything to, ha to add in terms of panelists please um please please do do say I have a question uh, saying disabled people are often struggling with self-representation and confident self-belief, which also can result in not getting into the interview process. What kind of advice can you have or can you give them? What can be done for them? It's a little bit um, relates to imposter syndrome in a way, doesn't it? And sort of not believing in yourself or, you know, not knowing your worth and, and, and not having that self-belief. I'll open it up to the panel. Yeah, I think um, we have society to blame for this as we yeah. blame those things on. But I think um, the whole narrative around disability forever has been one around, you know, it's been a negative one. So it's either been all disabled people are objects of pity that mm. can't achieve anything independently or make decisions or have any autonomy. Or it's been certainly in the last 10 years, when you think of the years of austerity, all disabled people are benefit scroungers, mm. you know, and actually you start to internalize some of this. Lots of people who have, you know, I know lots of adults who have been diagnosed with um, say autism or dyslexia as adults now look back and see, ah, oh, that's oh. why I was treated differently at school, mm. for example. So I think the, the stigma around, uh, and particularly around things like mental health, you know, people with mental health are, portrayed as uh you know axe wielding murderers or or whatever um I, I think the whole the whole narrative around disabled people even if you look at the bond films you know most of the mm. baddies have got facial disfigurement, disfigurement something or other you know so i think and even even the positive stereotypes you know the paralympians i mean paralympians are amazing people but most disabled people aren't Paralympians in the same way that most non-disabled people aren't Olympians. Exactly. So, you know, the, the whole narrative after the Paralympics often was, well, those people can, you know, break world records. You can't even get a job. And it's actually, you know, the whole, it's as though every story against us. So I think that people internalise that. And if you're told, you know, as a dyslexic child, you're told often enough at school that you're thick and you're stupid and you're never, and you're not working hard enough or or you're pretending to be deaf to, um, to gain mm. attention, you start to internalise some of that. And, and um, actually, I can use myself as an example. So I've worked in diversity and inclusion pretty much all my life in one way or another. Um, and yet, when I became disabled, so I became one of those people I'd been talking about, it took me two years to remember the message I kept telling mm. people, which was, 
actually, you can still do so much and you can do so much more now. I spent two years thinking, I can't do this now, can't do that now, can't do, can't be a proper mom anymore. I can't be a proper employee anymore. I can't do this anymore. And I've been telling people the opposite all my life. And when it happens to you, you internalize all of those, you know, subconscious, unconscious messages Mm. about disability being less than. Yeah. You know, so people internalize it. And what we need to do is actually change that. And what we do at Evenbreak is actually say to disabled candidates, it's not just that you deserve an equal chance to everybody else. It's that you have more to offer. You are a premium candidate Mm. because... You are used to facing barriers. You are used to solving problems. You are used to overcoming things that nobody else does. Mm. So actually, don't think of, of yourself as a, oh, I hope they give me a job and give me a chance. You know, they'd be mm. lucky to get you. Yeah, I mean, I get, <clears throat> I have imposter syndrome all the time because I have two small children. So sleep is a thing of the past. You need rest to be able to be able to concentrate on all of the conversations you're having. I need to be able to lip read and concentrate. I then need some time to process. Then I need some time to think about how I want to respond to it and then respond to it. And doing that exhausted or unwell is very difficult. And with a degenerative condition, I'm on a sliding slope every few years. And I think what I tend to do for myself is... um, especially when I think, oh my God, I, I just can't do this. So I read a job description, it feels overwhelming, is that I stop and I ask myself, if I wrote down a job description of what I currently do, of what I have done in the past, I would be blown away by what I was able and capable to do in an environment that was unforgiving to my needs. And so I think sometimes it's about t- stopping for a minute acknowledging how you feel acknowledging that it's perfectly acceptable to feel this way you're not being weak you're not being down on yourself but it's about taking stock as well giving yourself some time and really analyzing what you have done at any given situation whether you're uh, in school still or whether you are graduate or whether you're much more further within your career it's about stopping and, and really thinking about your accomplishments and then giving yourself a bit of a a bit of a, a, a pull up and, and saying, you know what, no, I can do this and believing in yourself and thinking, well, if what I have to offer isn't good enough for this company or this employer, then it's not good enough for me because ultimately the reality is you don't want to find yourself in a situation where you're working in a terrible job for a terrible employee. You don't want that impact on your emotional, mental well-being. And so at you know, the rejection can be hard, but then, you know, it might be a saving grace. So I think it's just about taking some time out for yourself and acknowledging how you feel and finding examples in your part, in your past where, you know, you've smashed it, you know, you've done exceptionally well, and you know what, what your, um, your strengths are, as well as acknowledging what your weaknesses are, you know, I find it very difficult to work with clients who have very strong accents. It's something I can't quite manage. I need additional support. I can't minute meetings and, and take notes while I'm converting. So I, I need that additional support. And I need whoever is taking my minutes to be absolutely brilliant at what they're doing because I am going to miss certain things. And I need those minutes to tell me all the little nuances because as a producer, I need to know everything that is going on. So it's perfectly okay to accept what you, what you can't do. And there's nothing there's no shame in saying that it's just then being very honest about that and being okay about that and saying what you do need to support that function and the more you start owning that 
the more confidence that you will eventually get. I'm recognising that everybody has strengths. Everybody. Um, I mean, I'm not going to go for a job as a Russian interpreter because I don't speak Russian. Got nothing to do with my ability mm. and it's the same for disabled people we tend to be too good at self-selecting mm. so because of the history of discrimination what we find with our candidates is they will only go for jobs that they can metaphorically do standing on their head with their eyes closed because they're likely to get discriminated even then so they're certainly not going to go for a job that you know might stretch them a bit mm. um, and often you know i have to say to, to colleagues and and, and candidates there's so much that you can do that you're just not acknowledging and that most people who go for jobs can't do 100%. Some research, I can't remember the figures now, where women will go for jobs that they can do 100% and men will go for jobs yeah. that I know it's a sweeping generalisation, but I think, you know, there's some research that backs that up. Mm. I think that applies for disabled people, well, anybody who's been discriminated against, because why would you go for a job that you think you might not be able to do to 100% because if you think you can't do it, the employer isn't going to give you but actually it's always about potential learning you know everybody has the ability to learn to grow um you know to use the strengths that they've got and to build on some of the other um issues and, and learn new skills and disabled people and non-disabled people are the same in that so mm. why do we limit ourselves when the world is doing a very good job of limit, limiting us already that's absolutely true. And I'll just go back to what you said earlier, uh, Jane, that you know, it's about society. Society makes us a certain, you know, think or feel a certain way. So in, in, in a, an employment perspective or in a, a workplace perspective, it's about the colleagues making you feel um, uncomfortable. So the whole thing about imposter syndrome is about creating empathy and building connections with your team because you are then you'll un, you'll get to understand what the trigger points are and how you can address those trigger points and who in your um your group are well-wishers or supporters and who aren't and then the people who aren't you can then try and address those problems in order to then feel more comfortable having conversations below beyond like a small talk for example so um definitely it is about society or about colleagues making us feel um you know in a negative way about ourselves sometimes role models i think sometimes it's about having role models i know that there was a professional services firm where one of the um very very senior partners decided to be open about his own mental health issues and um that was immediately transformative because everybody else in the organization could then say hang on, but he's he's right up there and he's open about his mental health condition. So it's okay for me to say to my manager, I'm really struggling at the moment, I need some support because it's not going to prevent me from, and just having those role models. Mm. And, you know, it's amazing. Uh, Caroline Casey, you may have come across her who leads the Valuable 500. And, you know, she's come across a, a whole load of CEOs, people in C-suites who are disabled but aren't open about it. Mm. Because we're still in a society where disabled is seen as less than. Um, but actually, if we could be much more open about any hidden difference, you know, whether it's sexual orientation, whether it's mental health, mm. whether it's the fact that we grew up in a inner city deprived area, you know, whatever that difference is, I think it's important that we're open about that so that people can say, oh, those people up there, they're like me, I can yeah. do that. Yeah. Whereas at the moment, you know, I can remember just another anecdote talking to a very senior HR person who really should have known better in the hospitality industry, 
telling her about what we do. And she said, um, oh, you know, that's really good. She said, I just can't see how somebody in a wheelchair can wait at tables. So I said, well, A, only 8% of disabled people use wheelchairs. So what about the other 92%? Mm. And B, in your organisation, you don't just have waiting jobs. You have marketing, IT, HR, you know, buyers, strategic directors. Why would you think that disabled people are only able to do, you know, those, those that kind of lower um, status, yes. lower paid jobs? Is that kind of mindset? And if that's a senior HR person, mm. what yeah. hope have the rest of us got? So I do think it's about having role models, about making it very clear that being disabled isn't a barrier to progression to not everybody's ambitious and that's fine. You know, if you want to work in, in the front line and you're happy doing that, that's absolutely great. And we need people like that, but we shouldn't assume that disabled people aren't ambitious in the same way that non-disabled people might be ambitious and that have the skills to lead and the skills for strategy. And so I think it's about role models as well in the media, on television, in the newspaper, in films, you know, whatever it might be um, in industry, just having those role models that says, if you have the talent, there shouldn't be any barriers to getting to where your potential will take you. Very good. I just want to say we only have about five minutes left of the webinar. So if anyone's got any pressing questions, please put them through. But to wrap up, I'm going to ask the panelists, what one thing would you encourage an employer to do? And one thing or one piece of advice you would give to an employee? Quinn, I'm going to start with you. Um, What's your top tip? So this is going to sound a bit saccharine, uh, and I apologize in advance, but the top tip is really the same for both, which is for employers to talk to the disabled workers so they can eliminate the barriers and prevent them, uh, to allow them to reach their full potential. And for disabled workers to talk to their, um, their managers, their employers about what they need. And I guess the real advice here is that to have those conversations with a plan, with a roadmap of how you're going to have them, what you want to get out of them and where you want to be at the end. Um, so I think a lot of people worry about having the conversation on both sides. And then when they go into the conversation, they don't have a plan, it spirals out of control. Mm. Things don't go where they want. So just make sure you take the 10 minutes to plan out what you want to get from the conversation. Mm. Um, there are a lot of free tools out there to help you do so. I've mentioned a few, I've popped a few links in. Just empower yourself to have the best outcome you can. Thank you. Priya? Well, Quinn's kind of stolen my answer a bit there, but um, but I'll, I'll, I'll add on to it. Um, where from uh, a disabled person's perspective, just remember your disability is a part of who you are. It's not all that you are. Uh, if you go into a conversation leading with your disability, that's the platform of which you're having this conversation on and you are much more than that and your disability is a real benefit to you in so many ways that we've covered today so see it as a strength uh, and see it as any one part of your personality dynamic and your skill set that comes to um, comes to the job and for employers I just urge employers to instead of looking at who's in front of them listening to the person that is in front of them. Um, spend less time uh, focusing on what that person may look like or what assistive equipment that person may have and actually listen to um, their presentation skills, listen to um, 
how they make you feel. Um, pay more attention to the conversation that you're actually having, because I think at that point you will actually be able to see how this person can really fit in with the organization and, and benefit your organization. Um, and to really acknowledge that two people are really having a conversation to see the person first. That's That would be my, my top tip children for you. Jane? Yeah, I think mine is very similar for both um, employers and uh, disabled candidates as well, which is just to change the whole um, narrative around, you know, if employers can see that disabled people form a really valuable source of untapped talent, and if disabled candidates can see themselves as a valuable source of talent that hasn't yet been recognised, everything else will flow from that, because all of the difficulties that we, we perceive, which aren't really difficulties, can be overcome pretty easily if the will is there on both sides. So I think if we start from the, the premise of untapped source of amazing talent, um, then everything else will flow from that. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Quinn, Jane and Priya for your time. And thank you, Priya, for being my co-producer. You've been really, really helpful. Um, thank you so much. Um, so please do keep an eye on, on, on our social media, on um, events together. And we will, of course, publish this um, webinar as well. If anybody has any questions, um, please feel free to email me and um, I will definitely get back to you. Contact DICE by emailing welcome at diversityinconferencesandevents.co.uk for all your diversity and inclusion needs. Why not visit our website today or follow us on social media?